listening to the Soil Talk podcast. I am your host, Tim Mundorf, Nutrient Management Lead with Central Valley Ag. In Soil Talk, we will dive into managing soil fertility and applied nutrients while pursuing top yield. So Jason, you know, following up on our talk last time, we talked a lot about uh, grid sampling and some of the reasons why we do grid sampling. We talked about, you know, the spatial differences. We talked a little bit about, you know, the, those trend lines when we do multiple uh, sampling events, you know, over the years, and we kind of build some confidence in it. But let's move on to zones. So when we think about zones, uh, you know, how do you think about zones differently than grids? Zones, zones are a little bit different than grids because it takes – in some different stuff. Um, we start using some of our yield analysis. We start using some EC mapping in some of it. Probably one of the bigger things we start using is we use topography. So we start kind of putting the hilltops separate of the bottoms. Um, we know kind of over time as soil is eroded, things have changed. You know, again, maybe, you know, some of those were were not farmed at one time because they were hilltops and they were always dry or they were they were uh, um, depressions and they were always wet and then we then we tiled them so do we start bringing in some some more things to look at and then combine those things into maybe a smaller set of samples is what we do we don't necessarily go out and take two and a half acres and two and a half acres, we combine them into a little bit smaller of a full field and then combine those samples into, or those cores into samples, and then we send those into the lab. So that's a little bit different thinking. Yeah, I think that's a key thing is a lot of people think of zones as just cheap grids. Well, that's not really true. It's just, it's really a whole different theory. So grids, you just say, you know what, I don't really hardly know anything about this field. So let's let the computer divide it up into little two and a half acre squares and we'll go out and pull samples in each little square. With zones, you're kind of saying, I'm going to bring in some other data, EC, uh, yield, topography, and I'm going to say, let's make zones that are larger than grids. We don't have to take quite as many samples, but let's make the zones match some system. You know, like you said, topography, yield, whatever. Um, but it's not just cheap grids. I think that's where some people get off. They say, well, I don't like zones because they're just, they're, they're just like grids, except they make them a lot bigger. Like a zone might be 10 or 15 acres instead of two and a half. Well, that's just a cheap grid. That's not really true. Each of them have their merit, I think. They do, but again, it goes back to, you know, what, what an individual looks at. You know, the ACS zones, we put all that data into there to come up with something. Um, there's also some places out there that they don't put all that data in there. They just say, we're going to make a zone with some type of satellite imagery is that satellite imagery georeferenced correctly is it is it good data bad data i mean so we got to be careful that too because there are some zones that that don't necessarily put all that time and that thought into making them which again that's part of the the magic of the acs brand is we have that relationship we have that touch to make sure that what we're getting out to the grower and to the FSAs ha- has been looked at and, and properly vetted, really. 
Yeah, when you talk about that ACS brand, you know, for our listeners who aren't familiar with Central Valley Ag, advanced cropping systems. And there's a rich history there, isn't there, Jason, on this whole precision ag piece. I know you've been doing some research into that, but 20, 25 years, right? I mean, basically at the start of precision ag. Yep, yep. We're going to, we're kind of looking at it. And basically a lot of our, some of our very, very first grid samples started in the fall of 95 96 in that right in that range and so there's a rich history there of of trying a lot of different ideas vetting a lot of different ideas coming up but always making sure that we looked at it as a system you know the advanced cropping systems and making sure that it brought some type of value to the grower that was always our the one of the biggest goals and, and still the biggest goal we have within the ACS is bringing value to that grower and helping him grow his his enterprise, really. I know you and I have talked about this recently, you know, as we talk about, you know, what are the, the right things to bring into Precision Ag? I mean, we don't want to just be selling product. We want to be answering agronomic questions and answering them correctly and coming up with solutions that we can apply. But really the key to precision ag is you take good agronomy and you apply it spatially. So we take good agronomy, you know, we know that we don't want our phosphorus values at at single digits. And we go look across that entire field and we apply that knowledge, that agronomic theory spatially. And we can do that with a lot of things, not just phosphorus and liming. We can do that with hybrid. We can do that with seeding rate. We can do that with uh, irrigation water. There's just a lot of things we can do. And that's kind of where also I would say the zones come in, right? Because some things don't lend themselves to grids. No, no, they really don't. And, you know, again, the, the spatially part of it, you know, the other thing that we did touch on that makes the zone a very special idea is the temporal, which is the time. And one of the one of the deals downfalls of grids is typically it's a longer time between we take those samples. Zones, we basically take those samples every year. So we are now compressing the time that we can look at and see what are we doing on these zones. We're making sure we're going the right way with each zone. Are we mining a spot we don't want to be or are we over applying or we about where we are on our target that makes a big deal and that that's one of the really big big things with zones is you can you know taking that grid that sample every year you can then really really start to hone in on what what the equations look like are we meeting that farmer's expectations is he is he happy with what he's seeing and we, we can make some changes maybe a little quicker on the fly actually yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And and as we talk about, you know, do do guys go down the route of doing zone-based soil sampling? Do, do they go down the route of doing grid-based soil sampling? It's really a history, right? Working in that grower system, what have we done in the past? If something's working, we kind of like to stick with it. Exactly right. And I think as we go forward, I think you're going to start seeing where we're not going to be such an either-or type philosophy. I mean, we've got you know, philosophies out there that, boy, we're just going to be a grid person, and by gosh, that's what we're going to do. I'm just going to be a zone person, and that's all I'm going to do. And I think we're going to start seeing that each one of them have spots, and then each one of them can complement each other in the opposite spot. And I really think that's where we're going to start seeing some more some more stuff start to happen and, and some advancements in the precision ag and 
and especially on the ACS side as we start to kind of meld some of that together a little bit. Yeah, when we think about it, there's really no reason with with the software that we work with that we can't take a grid-based layer and lay over a zone-based layer and have the two pieces of information complement each other. And one that I think of a lot is soil testing off of a grid, but yield goals off of a zone. Because when we make our recommendations for things like phosphorus or potassium, we think a lot about crop removal. Well, crop removal is going to vary based off the, you know, the potential for yield in these different areas. And those areas generally lend themselves to zones. For sampling, to, to kind of go back to the same spot all the time, sometimes that lends itself to grids. Or maybe your history's just been grids. Well, there's no reason that you can't have zones of yield and zones of yield potential. And I know that's a big piece of what you do on a day-to-day basis, right? Exactly right. You know, the yield potential, you know, and as we start looking now, we can apply that with some of these newer technologies and older technologies that we saw. I think maybe, you know, we kind of years ago when yield monitors first came out, probably some of the equipment was ahead of our knowledge. And I think we're maybe a little bit there again where we have all this equipment out there that can do all this fun, neat, cool stuff, whether it be you know, row by row planters or all this, switching hybrids. We know there's a there there, but we've got to figure that out. And so I think we're kind of at that point again where maybe the equipment has outpaced what we can do. We know there's a there, what we can do with our knowledge. And I think that's going to be where we're going to catch up here in the next couple of years and really, really start to make some of this equipment work for us again instead of take it from being cool to take it to being profitable. Right. It goes back to applying that good agronomy to it. And I, I've, I've had that discussion with people in the past as well. Just because we can do something doesn't necessarily mean we should do something. Is there a good agronomic reason for doing what we're going to do? And, and there again, I, I think that melding the, the zone and the grid there's no reason you can't do that. When Let's just talk about nitrogen. Now, nitrogen's a tough animal. But when you think about a nitrogen recommendation, you're thinking about what's my yield potential? What's my soil type? Now, those things kind of lend themselves to zones. But you're also thinking, well, what's my organic matter? Well, a lot of times we're going to get that off of grid samples. We can do a little bit better job of finding that spatial variation, say, organic matter. And even back to the soil type, we're going to get cation exchange capacity off that, uh, let's say, grid sample, if that's what we did. So there's no reason we can't take those different layers of data, meld them together, and come up with a better nitrogen recommendation. Of course, with the understanding that we don't even understand all the things that happen with nitrogen, things like microbial activity or the carbon to nitrogen ratio of that organic matter. So even though we've got good tools and we can make better decisions with them, you know, you and I understand there's limitations as well, and we're not always going to get the exact right answer, but we could do better than what we've done in the past. And I think, you know, that's probably something that, you know, don't let being better and being in the way of perfect right you know and i think maybe that's one thing that that we challenge ourselves with is well you know this isn't a perfect deal i don't know that perfect number of nitrogen or i don't know that perfect how many acres is a perfect grid sample or how many acres is a perfect grid yeah 
there's there's not perfect, but we're a heck of a lot better than what we were, and we're trying to trying to sort it out. Yep. And I think that's probably the biggest thing is if you did it the way you did it five years ago, we're you know that's the definition of insanity. Yeah. And so if you're always worried about well this idea isn't going to be perfect, well that's just not going to. You, you wouldn't be married at that point. Right, exactly. So. Per- perfect oftentimes is the enemy of better because you, you keep poking holes in something that's actually a better system and you don't move forward with it. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. We've had that discussion before. And, you know, you and I could each poke holes in each other's theories and plans. And actually, we do quite often. And that helps us make it better. But both of us know that we've got to move forward with something. It doesn't have to answer every single question or eventuality. It's got to be better than it was before. Exactly. And we're, we, we are doing things better. But that's what we've got to, that's kind of that mindset, like you said, we got to kind of get away from is, you know, it isn't. This is a good idea, and we're moving forward, and we're learning. That's the biggest thing. Did I learn something from this experience and, and apply it to next year? So let's drill down and get a little bit more specific. You know, when I think of zones, and, and you and I have worked together on things like this for a long time, but seeding just jumps right out at me, right? So um, as you get to better soil, generally with corn, we're thinking we've got an opportunity to chase higher yields by putting a little more population out there. You go to soybeans, oftentimes it's the other way around. We get to better areas, we're thinking that we can chase a little more yield by dropping our population and letting that plant branch out a little bit more. Maybe some of our opportunity with soybeans is actually in the poorer yielding areas. Let's get more population out there because we know those beans are going to be short. We're going to need more plants to get as many pods out there as we can. Let's talk a little bit about that. I mean, what thoughts go through your mind as you're looking at building a verberate prescription for seeding? I mean, I guess the first thing that comes to mind, just like you said, is it isn't going to be a black box. You you have to know those fields. You have to know the area, and that's probably the first the first part because things may be inverse of what what they are. I mean, you know, like you said, sometimes where we got we want to put less beans, we're going to put more corn. Um, we have to know. You know, it sure helps to know what the what the corn hybrids are. You know, some of these hybrids now we're wanting to push those those populations again. That's kind of a that seems like that's kind of a circle that we go round and round on. We go into fixed ears, then we go into flex ears, and we go back to fixed ears. So so that's part of it. You know, and that goes back to that local you know stuff. That goes back to learning that and. You know, like you said, making those zones, using some of that spatial data that we can get, some of the satellite imagery, some of those type of images, the good yield monitor data that we can then start, you know, putting those in there. Because those ideas, sometimes you sometimes you come across an idea and you think you've got it, and it's exactly opposite, like you said. Sometimes some of the bean stuff, and a lot of this, honestly, is, has proved itself out that... You know, as some of these people, you know, whether it be university or independent researchers or that type of stuff, did small plots, they can be really accurate in those small plots. So they've been telling us, you know, this is what kind of parts per million phosphorus is, or this is where K should be. And as we expanded that out, we figured out that you have so much more variability, we've got to move some of those numbers because we can't be that precise. 
kind of some of the same things on like soybeans right now soybeans is how low can I go and you know in some of those spots we probably can go really low but we better not go you know too low and there's spots that we need to actually go higher that's where you use that type of zone stuff again yeah, when I see those crazy high yields at uh, 70,000 drop population of soybeans, it makes me really nervous because, yes, if that bean really does bush out and, and create, you know, a huge plant with just, you know, 100 pods on it, that probably will work. But you get into a bad area and it ends up a little short and a little smaller and it doesn't canopy, and now all of a sudden it doesn't have weed control, it's going to be a train wreck. So that's where you got to be real careful. As, as you move from things we're, you know, a little more confident in and maybe that don't really show big problems like, you know, a, a medium pH or a phosphorus level that's a little low to something like, you know, changing a seeding rack by 25%, you can really create a nightmare if you're not careful. It's Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's where the zones and knowing knowing the history of that farm, knowing the zones, creating those zones. Who created those zones? Did somebody look at them, or is it just a computer that... that Off the soil type. Yeah, it just was a soil type. I mean, so, you know, that's part of what you got to know, too, is what what made these, what, who made these. And that goes back to that relationship that we try to establish, we want to have established with those growers, because if we don't know their goals they don't know we can't help them that's probably the biggest thing that's one of the things i i didn't like about some of the software that would automatically make zones like off of yield data you'd get four years of yield data out there and of course you got multiple crops so they got to kind of take that difference in just the natural um, yield potential of a crop into consideration so they they wash that out but you get these zones that just don't make any sense sometimes. I mean, you'll have an area that this is high yielding, and right in the middle of it, it'll say, well, this is a, a poor zone. And you almost need to get out there on that ground and see if you can understand why. One nice thing about it is those maps, as agronomists, can help us say, oh, well, this is a water issue. Or, oh, this is a you know an old uh, land leveling issue. You know, when we take yield information, we immediately say, okay, this area yields poorly and this area yields well and we make all of our decisions based off of that i think we do a disservice as agronomists because if a yield if a area yields poorly i think one of the first things that you do is you ask why not you drop your corn population you ask why and you say as an agronomist what can i do to fix this you know is it recommending that this farmer gets this area to drain better is it recommending that this guy brings some manure out to fix something that's you know maybe eroded but it's not just automatically let's drop our corn population and just assume that this thing will never be able to yield over 150 bushel. No, no, I that's exactly right. And that's what we got to be careful of. So I, that's like I said, that's where we got to really, really watch that. You don't want to make a spot that it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy that yeah. it does. It's always going to be 150 if I make it be 150. So you got to make sure that you don't do that either. Yeah, as you move to verberate seeding and verberate nitrogen, the words you just said, self-fulfilling prophecy, those stand out to me. 
And, you know, as we move to verberate nitrogen, so we kind of talked about seeding a little bit, but as you move to verberate nitrogen and you say this area is only capable of yielding 150 or 180 bushel corn, my field average might be 225. I got this area over here that I think could do 250. As you start limiting those low areas and you say, I'm only going to apply the nitrogen for 150 bushel corn, surprise, surprise, those areas turn yellow on you. Exactly right. That's, yeah, I mean... If that's what you want, that's what you're going to get. And so that's what we just got to be careful. Maybe those spots only will yield 150, but we've got to make sure of that, that we don't just make it yield that first. I was working with a good agronomist one time who I've got a lot of respect for, and he told me, you know, one thing I'm real careful about is I do verberate nitrogen prescriptions. He says it's almost that the low-yielding areas actually need a little bit more nitrogen or certainly don't need any less and it's almost, it's more biological activity and the ability of that soil to cycle the nutrients that are already there or cycle the nitrogen out of the stover. Exactly. I mean, I think, you know, kind of goes back a little bit to soil health, goes back to a lot of different things. You know, when you think back, you know, we used to try to apply a lot more nitrogen per bushel. We really haven't applied a lot more nitrogen over the years in the last 15 years since I've been here. But we've got a lot more yield. Yeah. So raising this, we're putting in the same amount of nitrogen total pounds and a lot more yield. So our per bushel has gotten down quite a bit in those low areas. We might be too low. Exactly. Those low yielding areas. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I've, I've heard a couple of agronomists sometimes will say that it, it's almost, if you do verberate seeding, you can put a little more nitrogen in the areas where you throw down more plants, but where you back the plants off because by nature that doesn't, cycle the the nitrogen in the soil as well don't back the nitrogen rate off there now the negative is you're going to end up applying more nitrogen overall because you leave you know your average the same across all the field except for the high yielding area and it gets more you never drop anywhere but honestly i think that's probably agronomically correct there's there's a lot of theory there and there's a lot of truth to that i think that that's something we got to start looking at more because i think that's where we could see some some stuff starting to happen yep it kind of goes back to just because you can do math doesn't mean you should be writing agronomy equations because they may not work for you. So Jason, it's that time in the podcast where we normally kind of go to a funny farm story and uh, I've got one more here. So I've spent quite a few years now uh, more on the consulting side than certainly on the farming side. Uh, I've done a lot of talks, a lot of education events for growers, a lot of education events for ag retailers. And there was a time and, and, actually continues today that I do uh, some larger training events and and I've got quite a bit of material that we'll go over trying to educate you know maybe younger agronomists or guys new to the business to help them make good decisions on soil fertility and one thing I talk about a lot is nitrogen and nitrogen is just such a tough animal and I, I generally dedicate an hour to two hours just specifically to nitrogen the whole thing will be about you know how we make nitrogen recommendations and, and lookouts on nitrogen and how to manage the interaction of nitrogen and water but i've got this overriding rule i always put out there to, to, to people and i'll say what's the most important thing you got to remember about nitrogen and people say oh you got to think about yield or oh you got to think about rainfall amounts or oh you got to think about loss pathways or you got to think about protecting it and i'm like no that's not it no that's not it no that's not it and they're like what and i'm like when the corn turns yellow, someone's going to call and chew your butt. That's the most important thing about <laughs> nitrogen. If you don't get that right, you're never going to make it as an agronomist. And everybody will laugh. 
Well, anyway, one day I'm in the middle of one of these talks and I've got about 30 people sitting in a room and I've just given them the spiel about, you better get your nitrogen right or someone's going to call you and chew your butt because the corn turned yellow and all the neighbors can see it and you look like an idiot. And lo and behold, I'm using my cell phone as a timer on, on the table in front of me, and my cell phone starts ringing. Well, I've got it turned on to silent. I'm not, I'm not that dumb. I leave my own cell phone ringing as I'm the speaker. But I look down, and it's my brother-in-law. And of course, I you know I click the top of the phone so it quits buzzing, and I go on with my talk. And I get to the end of the day, and I call uh, my brother-in-law, Grant, back up. And I say, oh, hey, Grant, what's going on? He says, you know... That model that you told us to use, it told us we needed a little more nitrogen, but we came back and we asked you if you thought we should apply that extra, you know, 40 pounds the model was calling for. And you said, you know, we've done that the last couple of years and we really haven't seen yield response to it. And the corn stayed uh, green in the checks where we left it without. This year, let's just skip it. You know, corn prices are a little low and I just don't think it's going to pay. Let's go ahead and skip it. He goes, you know what? The hills just turned yellow. <laughs> So I'm sitting there giving these guys a talk about don't ever let the corn turn yellow. That's one of the key things in nitrogen management. While my phone's ringing as my brother-in-law, who I'm making the nitrogen wrecks for, is calling me to tell me the corn turned yellow. And I just thought that was the funniest thing. That here it is. I'm the idiot who's getting the call that the corn turns yellow. And here's the guy calling to chew my butt as I'm giving him all that talk about it. whatever you do, don't let the corn turn yellow. Look, it goes back to that to that saying: the soil doesn't read books, and <laughs> we can model it and do everything. But if sometimes it just doesn't read the books correctly, so. that is one of my favorites. A, an agronomist told me that one time too. He says, "You know, you can think this through all you want, but soil don't read books, or dirt don't read books." So you might have learned the best you could out of whatever your degree was and all the different books they stuck in front of you, but the dirt didn't read it. Nope. So it isn't going to behave exactly the way the book told you it was going to. So, Jason, another thing I wanted to cover is, is we talk about, you know, we, we went through grids, we went through zones. I think we've get, done a good job of, of talking about, you know, some of the positives and minuses of each. But, you know, going forward, what, what are the next steps? We talked about variable rate seeding, you know, variable population. We talked about um, variable rate nitrogen. As we move forward, What's going to be the next things on the on on the the horizon? You know, probably you know, I don't want to keep harping on it, but the first thing is is starting with the good base, whether that be the samples, just like we talked. You know, then probably some of the things on the horizon. You know, you're probably looking at some different ways to use the data, uh, satellite imagery, um, drone imagery. You know, looking at different types of imagery, can I can I make decisions faster? Um, could I use an irrigation pivot as a platform to put sensors on? Uh, because then I can actually. The one thing with a lot of the technology we have now is it's kind of a report card and almost looking back. Yeah. How can I make decisions real time? If I have, you know, a sprinkler plugged in my pivot, how can I see that to fix it? Um, you know, if I've got weeds coming or if I've got an insect, what? That's probably the bigger thing is trying to do stuff more in real time, because um, that's you know, 
I want to be able to pay for this this year, and I want to be able to use it this year too. So that's probably some of the really big, one of the bigger things I think that's probably coming on kind of the the, the horizon. Uh, probably, like I said, using data, making, you know, looking at some grids, some zones, trying to make some decisions off of that, whether that be, you know, using different products, um, using different, uh, uh, using different ad add-ins um, using different you know where where can some of these things fit in you know maybe I need to you know nitrogen stabilizers or you know where would that have the best fit you know would it have a fit on this type of soil type as compared to this type of soil type um, you know phosphorus stabilizers that type of stuff where where do things have fits because we know everything has a fit but maybe it isn't on the whole field it's on part of this field, but if I can get a get an idea of where it's going to be the best part in that field, why not put it on there? Yeah, you're right. There's there's a lot of opportunity, like you said. You know, with soil sampling, you know, we're dealing with okay, where's the soil at now? What what has happened in the past to get the soil there? What are we going to do going forward? But it's not real time. It's looking at multiple crop seasons and in, in the future. It's not you know, fixing today's crop now. We're not, you know, we're not great at that as, as agronomists when it comes to, especially soil fertility. Well, in seeding decisions, those are made well in advance, but you're right. There's opportunities for us to make better real-time decisions off of things that Precision Ag can bring us. Um, I, I do like satellite imagery. I, I like uh, drone imagery. You and I have discussed in the past, you know, some of the limitations we've seen. You know, if there's too much cloud cover, you know, how low, how late or long ago is that satellite imagery? How how often is a satellite from that company passing over versus you know some other company? And then when you go to the drones, you know, do you have to stitch all the photography together? What sensors are you using? It's just I don't know. There's so much information. Sometimes it paralyzes your ability to make decisions off of. And you and I have both done scouting. It's good to get boots out there on the ground, but it's tough to get boots out there on all the ground. Whereas imagery and 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 uh, the things that drones can bring us can get us more, you know, spatially dense information. Maybe we can make better real time decisions off of. And it would maybe kind of give us a little focus. You know, I have to focus on this area or this field. You know, I think that's some of what we're looking at too. You know, I this field's a concern, so I better go look at this field today, or this area is a concern in this field, or I don't have to worry about this time. But probably the biggest thing is trying to get some of that in real time to 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 make those decisions. Cause, you know, we can we can do tissue sampling, we can do some different in season different in season soil sampling. And maybe we can adjust as as we're looking at maybe not putting all our nitrogen up front anymore. You know, we're moving our nitrogens to split applications. Like you said, you know, a model, what what maybe could we do there? So I think that's going to be a huge, a huge learning curve, but a huge opportunity. I think you're right there. I think nitrogen is probably one of the frontiers that we need to bring precision ag into um, probably next. I mean, when we look at that combination of the amount of effect that you can get from nitrogen in crops like corn and wheat and milo you know you know that those impacts are huge 
And we also look at the negative of nitrogen, you know, the environmental impact, whether you're talking about, you know, the hypoxia zone down in the Gulf or whether you're talking about nitrates in groundwater. You know, we're recording this in central Nebraska. We've got a lot of issues with nitrates in our groundwater. So can we use the technology to be more efficient with nitrogen while at the same time maximizing yield? And I, I think the answer is yes. We just have to figure it out. And maybe we even have to get past, you know, back to my funny story, um, the corn turning yellow. Maybe we've got to figure out a way that we balance those two out. Because right now we really don't account for the environmental uh, cost very well. And that's something I think we can do better in the future. But we've got to get everybody together on it. One of the big challenges I find is everybody's looking for a cheap solution. And a cheap solution isn't necessarily a good solution. You know, there's enough imagery out there that people are kind of used to some things being free. Well, free generally isn't the kind of stuff that you can make decisions off of. So we got to find some way to balance out um, the value of it with the cost of it and where are we going moving forward? What's the best bang for the buck? And maybe one way to do that is we've got to start assessing some of these environmental costs and bring those into the equation. No, I, I think that's you're totally right there. And I think if we can bring some of those ideas and, again, apply them spatially, that's what that's what the ACS does and that's what it does best is apply those solutions spatially. I think that really then starts to hone down on some of that some of those reasons. Maybe the reasons that that corn turned yellow was we, we needed to look some other way some other reason why maybe that maybe we had a high pH there or a low we you know we just got to make sure because it's all a it all interacts together. It isn't just an island of itself. So that's one of the things that makes it a challenge but makes it fun is, is it isn't all just one simple answer. You know, as we look out there into the horizon again, and this is one we've talked about a lot. We just haven't seen it come to great fruition as far as what do we do with it and what value do we find? How do we make it, you know, uh, pay for the farmer? And that's the big data, right? I mean, we've got a lot of information. How do we truly make that data work for us and pay the farmer? And I think you're probably asking one of the tougher questions, in my opinion. Uh, big data is tough. Um, you know, I know I, I look at it and if you buy, you know, some of these companies are seeing what like a Costco can do or a Walmart or a Target but you know they have stuff that is standardized if you buy a gallon of milk it has a UPC code to it and that UPC code is the same whatever store you buy it at it's a gallon of milk right and, and, and those guys know that if I pick up a gallon of milk I'm headed to the cookie aisle so you can just put those things together every time for me it, Exactly right. No, you're you are exactly right. But and and so they know that, and it's easier for them to track it. Whereas in agriculture, we really don't have much of a standardized, which is good. That's what's made us special for hundreds of years. Is it has been individual solutions, and so I think instead of maybe looking at all this big data stuff. The start is looking at farm data stuff. Look at your own stuff first. Sit down with somebody and just kind of look at it and talk about it. You know, take the simple solution first, you know, and then build from there. Again, like we talked about, don't 
don't just get overwhelmed and say, geez, I just don't even know where to start, so I'm not going to start. At least take a bite somewhere and try it. Right, that's a good point that... Uh you know, and I, I always come up with yield first as my, my first big data thing. So when you're talking about yield, there's just so many components that can go into it. So you say, well, I, you had poor yield on this field. Did it not rain there? Did your pivot not work there? Did you Were you low on nitrogen there? Did you end up having a disease issue? Did you have an insect problem? Was your stand poor? You know, yes, all of those are possible. It doesn't tell me anything if I don't have other information to go with it. So when everybody said, oh, we're going to gather this yield data and we're going to gather this weather data and we're going to make all these awesome things with it, we have made some great things with it. But without local boots on the ground, information, knowledge of that farm, you know, we talked about it kind of on the last episode. My grandfather knew the 160 acres he farmed like the back of his hand. We don't know that necessarily anymore. We need to kind of get back there too, and that's where we got to bring multiple tools together. It's not just data that's going to solve all of our problems. It's data, local knowledge, good agronomy. Put those together and you can do something. Well, I mean, you just hit it right there. There's three legs of a stool. Yep. And without all three legs, the stool falls down. And I think that's probably just a that's, that's just a great analogy that that's, if you don't have that solid stool to sit on, nothing else matters. Yep. So I think that's, that's huge. And that's why we got to continue to concentrate on that. Yep. Yep. You know, and you've mentioned ACS a few times here in our discussions and that advanced cropping systems, again, 25 years of history. And you and I have talked about it multiple times. And, and that's the reason we're talking about grid and zone sampling uh, here in these two episodes is, the base of precision ag is still the things that we have high confidence in, and that is soil sampling and verberate fertilizer application based off multiple samples going across that field, and, and even better yet, a combination of spatially dense and some temporal density and temporal analysis. What are those trends you know, going down through time? Some growers will want to skip that and jump all the way to multi-hybrid seeding or all the way to verberate seeding or all the way to verberate nitrogen. And almost every time I'm like, I'm just not going to go there. If you're not willing to spend the money on grid sampling and understanding your fertility and understanding the variation in soil across your field, we're not going to those other, what I would call higher planes in precision ag. I would agree. And it goes back to what we talked about, you know, just because we can, if we bought a multi-hybrid planter or we bought a variable rate seat you know row by row planner i can do it but because we can should we and if you don't start with good agronomy first then if for some reason we had soil uh soil test levels that weren't going to support 280 bushel corn but i put out there 280 bushel corn i planted it at whatever you want to pick your number some people may say you need to be at 32,000 you can accomplish it. Some maybe say you need to be at 42,000. And let's say we put 42,000 out there and it goes on the ground. Well, you say, well, it's because I planted too thick. No, it was because you didn't have your soil fertility, your base out there first, so it could handle that. So that's huge. I mean, you got to start with that, with that base. Like you said, don't do it just because you can. Right. I, I like to chase population. I, I like to chase yield. But you go throwing 40,000 out there on some ground that's at best at 30,000, it's going over. 
Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> the question it's going is over. when. Yeah. It's going over. Is yep. it in season still, or is it wait all the way to the end, end of the season where you think, gosh, I'm actually going to be able to harvest this thing, and then it's laying on the ground? Yeah, that's that's one of the big things. And again, don't get the cart ahead of the horse. Work your way through the system. You know, working with a good agronomist who understands precision ag and the steps and really the order they should be taken to a lot better way than just picking and choosing like this is a buffet line and running straight to the pie at the end of the line thinking that's going to be a good meal for you. Not the best plan. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, as much as my two and a half year old wants to have his cookie right away, we have to make him, you know, he has to wait for his cookie at least. So, and sometimes he doesn't appreciate that, but he has to eat something else before his cookie. So yeah, that's kind of a good way to put it that, you know, you got to eat something first before you get the sweet. So I think you're right. That's exactly a good way to put it. Well, we've covered a lot of things here. I really appreciate you being on our podcast, Jason, and I'm sure we'll come back and grab you in future episodes as well because we've only scratched the surface on Precision Ag. There's a lot more things out there, and we'll make sure we put some more episodes dedicated to it. So thank you. Yep. Thank you for having me. With Tim Mundorf, this is Jason Cook, and this is the Soil Talk Podcast. Thank you for joining us today on Soil Talk. If you'd like to follow us, you can follow us on Twitter at ACS by CVA. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Central Valley Ag. If you'd like more information, visit cvacoop.com, and you can see our precision-focused blog videos every Thursday. With Soil Talk, this is Tim Mundorf. Thank you.